It's happening, readers. We have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called TBR. And I'm delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request. That's right. We're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. <laughs> Welcome to Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about in the world of books and reading and global geopolitical stuff happening apparently now at the same time as what we do. We're recording on Thursday, June 4th, 2020. And believe it or not, since the last time we spoke to you guys, the world in America is even more turned upside down, even more in distress, even more... Um, tumultuous and fraught um well actually you know what it's just as fraught as it was it's just that people are people are taking the streets in greater numbers about and people are paying attention we'll get to a little bit we'll spend some time at the top of the show talking about you know the protests and the events of the last week um that are the culmination of a several um deaths involving police of black people that is of course not just about that but you know what America has done to black people and people of color for, you know, several centuries now. Um, but Rebecca, you know, 2020 was like, man, this is quite a year. And then 2020 <laughs> was like, hold my beer, like to itself. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not a book story and it is a book story. We're going to focus on touching on the pieces of, mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what are, the, 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 the race, the racial protests the social justice protests like i'm not even sure what we're calling this at this particular moment um nomenclature is even fuzzy at this point we know what it's about but not what it is to some degree yeah i mean i think that's because it's about many yes. things and i'm seeing it broadly referred to as the movement and if you then get to the movement for what it's the movement for an end to police brutality and mm-hmm. it's a movement to social justice and true social equality for black people um, here in the south like I, i'm in richmond the capital of the confederacy it's a movement to tear down monuments to civil war leaders from the confederacy and make us stop looking at them every yep. day and stop holding up um, men who took the actions that they took as heroes i think it's about people putting their money where their mouths are um governments listening to the people that they are supposed to be representing an actual equal treatment under the law. Well, um, so I guess we can start in a whole bunch of different places. We'll put a bunch of links in the show notes to things that are relevant um, to, you know, what we tend to talk about here about books and reading and writing. Um, You know, the one, I guess maybe the most interesting thing I've seen from our point of view, just our little part of the world, even just our little site is the activity around Posts that Book Riot has published over the years about racial justice, about black authors, about kids' books featuring diversity, the search traffic has mm-hmm. been noticeable and sustained and high. And it's not unlike what I'm seeing, and I think you mentioned this too in a different context, seeing protests happen not just in city centers of big cities, but on street corners, like down the street from us here, not in downtown Portland, yesterday afternoon at like 5, there's like 50 people, kind of a random intersection, 
you know, holding up signs saying justice for George uh, mm-hmm. in Lawrence and Kansas City, places we know, Greenville, um, Greenville, South Carolina, where, where a former student of mine is, places that typically you don't see a big protest are happening there. And so it's it's so diffuse and persistent across so many locations. It's showing up on the Internet. It's showing up in person. And I think that connection has been striking for me because Unfortunately, we lived through this. We lived through Trayvon Martin. We lived mm-hmm. through uh, Michael Brown. Um, and that's just to name a, a couple. Um, and we didn't see things like this happening now. And this beyond the scope of what my expertise is for now in the scope of the show of why this particular moment, except to acknowledge even on the Google Analytics dashboard, this yeah. is a thing. Uh, for our one little site, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it is. And it feels meaningfully different from the way that it felt in like the summer of 2014 when Michael Brown was killed and Ferguson was mm-hmm. happening. Um, and it feels meaningfully different from the summer of 2016 when Charlotte, or yeah, summer of 2016 when Charlottesville mm-hmm. was happening um, or what that was Charleston. Too many things to I mean, remember. It's, 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 it's one of the great signs of the scale and embeddedness of the problem is that they'd all just run together. They, right? I mean, yeah. it, it really, it's true. It's and true. this, this moment does feel meaningfully different because people are speaking up that we haven't seen speak up before in places that people have not spoken up before. And it's happening, as you were saying, in small towns, um, we're seeing it in Richmond. I'm hoping that people are seeing it in other cities too, where leaders of churches that either mm. endorsed Trump, you know, in the way that churches do, um, or were silent about the election, and or have been silent about the treatment of black people in our society are now not only speaking up about black lives matter but are kind of we got some pastors going on apology tours about their you know apologizing mm-hmm. for the cultures of silence that they've created in their churches it it looks like something new is happening or there's growth into a, a different group of people in our communities um, are becoming interested in these matters or about learning more about them or learning how to speak about them. And we saw it also in book sales this week. Like yes. on, it's on the it's on the Amazon dashboard. Yep. It's, I'm sure on the dashboards of most of the analytics for many independent bookstores, um, there are anti-racist titles being widely recommended and they are being purchased just at a bonkers rate, I believe earlier this week, um, I saw Ibram X. Kendi, whom we'll talk about in a little bit, had a screenshot on his Instagram that uh, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad was number one on Amazon, and his book, How to Be Anti-Racist, was number two. And for two books about anti-racism, just even two books by Black authors, yep. to be the two best-selling books on Amazon is, I think, unprecedented uh, and really remarkable. Um, yeah, and in some of the the titles, like stand from the beginning, you can't get for love or money in print right now in a lot of locations. Now, independent mm-hmm. bookstores around the country might have them in different rates, just because you know th- th- there might be some variation in demand or people didn't check or whatever. But um, how to be anti racist? Stand from the beginning. There was another one too that I saw was that people couldn't find. Anyway, th- there's a whole bunch out there. I'm going to put, I'm not going to go through them now, but I'll put some mm-hmm. of the links to what people are searching for and showing up yeah. in Google Analytics and our show notes here so you can see a lot of kids' book stuff, middle grade. Like people are looking for all kinds of stuff and um, I think that's encouraging. I'm not sure what else to say than it's better than it not happening mm-hmm. um, right now to the point where Spotify, um, I- I'd love to know the terms of this deal. Fascinating to, to know the terms, but is making Stamp from the Beginning available for free well i guess 
Spotify is always free unless you pay for it, which is a weird thing to say. But if you listen to ads, it's free. If you don't listen to ads, you pay for it, and there's some other features. But Stand From the Beginning is on Spotify, and you can listen to it even with um, the ad-supported free accounts as an audio book. Um, another situation of you know all the talk about the resilience of print and everyone print print except that digital is great because it scales mm-hmm. to infinity and you can do stuff like this right just to remember that for a moment yeah and if you're not familiar stamped from the beginning is a history of racist ideas in america and a really important and elegant unpacking of uh, unpacking and dismantling of the idea that racism and racist ideas are born from ignorance mm-hmm. um kendy shows us how like the country was crafted this way. I've, I've seen something going around this week that says the system isn't broken. The system was created mm-hmm. to work this way. Um, racist systems were carefully and intentionally built by folks who were leading America at the time and who were intellectuals of their time. And the policies today continue to be crafted by folks of, you know, sort of thinkers or folks who are supposed to be thinkers. Um, and he breaks all of this down into a, a history of the ideas about um, race, um, ideas about black people and their place in our society and how that carries from the founding of the country up through today. So that one's available um, to check out. There's, there, I mean, you could, it seems silly to try to, to me, to try to mm-hmm. recommend a specific book people should read. I think look at the list. Um, I think this kind of book is so important for someone who didn't, have has much exposure to this way of thinking about structural res- racism as a historical monument that was built intentionally, as you mm-hmm. said, and how it's been updated and uh, maintained o- over time. Um, let's see how I, you know, there's been a lot of calls for a lot of different things you can do. Um, our part of the world is there are black owned bookstores out there. Not mm-hmm. as many of them there should be, but they're easier to find than ever right now. And you can order from them online. I actually um, just to, to one example I ordered from, couple books from the lit bar which is uh, run by a friend of the site and show noel santos in uh, the uh, bronx new york um well i guess we can do a double plug here for the <laughs> lit bar but also i ordered my uh, print copy out now of the vanishing half by Britt bennett which you are going to be talking with sharifa mm-hmm. and vanessa about in a couple weeks um i also ordered um, renee watson's uh new book um that's sort of pitched as ramona ramona quimby but um for a modern, more diverse reader oh, cool. set. Uh, my kids have really liked the Ramona Quimby series, but I love Beverly Clary, no shade, really, but it was <laughs> written in 1954. And yeah. for all the things that came along with it, um, I would like to keep some of what Ramona Quimby's about and integrate some other things that are very much <laughs> missing from it, if you catch what I'm putting down yeah. mm-hmm. about that. Um, so that there, there, uh, the Lit Bar storefront is actually through bookshop.org, so I did that. Got it. There's a 10% discount. Got some shipping. Should be here next week. Um, and they get a piece of that cut. So I'll put a link to the show notes. That's been floating around um, a lot. But there's a lot of black-owned bookstores that you could choose to patronize right now. You know, there's a lot of different things you can do. I'm not an expert in saying what the best or worst thing to do right now. I think if you haven't read a book dedicated to the history of black people in America, it's a pretty good time. I mean, I just think it is. I, I mean, yeah, that, that's, I if I have one thing, if you haven't done it, it could be this. It could be other ones. There's a bunch of ones out there. Um, but I think for a bookish person, if you're trying to think of something that matters, it's not fun to read about American history with black people. I guarantee you it's not. You're going to be uncomfortable. But 
you should be uncomfortable. I should mm-hmm. be uncomfortable. Uncomfortable for most of us uh, in the world of books and reading, and um, we'll talk about this in a minute, too, <laughs> is the place to be right now. Yeah, I'm going to recommend a couple. Um, one might be, actually, they might be both difficult to find right now, and that's a great problem yeah. to have. Um, Me and White Supremacy by Layla Saad grew out of an Instagram challenge that she hosted last year. Uh, and it's set up as a workbook, um, which I found to be really mm-hmm. interesting and helpful where like, you know, a couple of pages a day or a couple of pages at a time about a concept in unpacking what white supremacy is. And for white people, your place in white supremacy, even for non-black people of color. Mm. Um, and that can be a different experience um, of benefiting from white supremacy in some ways or, or benefiting from anti-black um, policies and anti-black sentiments. So I think it's applicable to many of us um, for doing your internal work. Um, Ijeoma Oluwu's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, is also great for talking to yourself about race. But if you are in the place where like, you've been thinking about anti-racist ideas for a little while, and now is the moment that you're going to start being willing to like ruin family dinners over um, racist mm-hmm. remarks that folks make, it gives you good language and also structural thinking for how to engage folks in conversations that might diffuse some of their defensiveness around it and help them to understand where you're coming from and why these ideas matter. Um, And because I'm coming from also the world of like yoga and mindfulness, there's a wonderful little book uh, called Skill in Action by Michelle Cassandra Johnson that applies principles of yoga, um, particularly the like very first value of yoga, which is non-harming and creating a world in which harm doesn't occur um, to the yoga process practice and white supremacy and it's really really excellent and challenging let's do a sponsor spot and we'll come back and talk about some more stuff it's happening readers we have heard that you want paperbacks from our tailored book recommendation service called tbr and i am delighted to let you know that we're going to be in sync with your request that's right we're bringing paperbacks. Whether you hate carrying around bulky hardcovers, you're on a budget, you want a wider range of recommendations, or all of the above, now you can get a paperback subscription from TBR curated just for you by one of our bibliologists. Get all the details at mytbr.co. That's mytbr.co. We're bringing paperbacks. Okay, um, Lee and Lowe, which is um, a children's book publisher that focuses on diversity, um, owned by people of color, has a, I saw it pop, I mean, this is the world I'm into, pop up in my mm-hmm. Instagram a whole bunch over the last day or two about black representation in the publishing industry. Longtime listeners of the show will not be surprised because we've talked about these numbers before, um, especially, around, especially around Publishers Weekly annual surveys. But um, just the numbers, 4% of literary agents um, identify as black. 1% of editorial folks in the publishing industry mm-hmm. represents black. 4% in marketing and publicity. 3% in sales. 4% of reviewers. And 5% of authors. Um, you know, based on how you count and how you identify, black people in America are, you know, 18 to 24% somewhere in there. You know, again, these things like a lot of things we've been taught, are not as clear-cut as we would like to think. Literally not a black-and-white issue along mm-hmm. along many vectors of identification. But it's well below what it should be. It's no better than it was when we first started talking about it on this show six years ago. Um, I don't want to name names, 
but saw some people on Instagram talking about the recalcitrance and even in their own publishing worlds of, you know, their bosses, the people hiring, saying they want to do better and maybe there's something better, but the fundamental problems are still there. And, you know, maybe the principal one, what the publishing industry has some control over. The publishing industry doesn't have control of the whole vector of, of systemic racism. I mean, that, that's short-sighted to think that if you just did better, you could fix everything. Well, that doesn't how it work. You can fix what you can fix. But the problem here is that one of the ways that publishing works right now, even in the relatively mo- low margin businesses right now, the entry-level editorial positions pay like crap. And you live in expensive places. Mm-hmm. And so by its nature is only in most attractive, available, even possible to people already with means and because of how wealth is distributed, that tends to not mean black folks um, and other people of color too. And that's kind of where the rubber meets the road here, right? I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. based on our, our best understanding is like, it's not a pipeline problem necessarily, though certainly the pipeline could use help for black people in education and academia and all along the socioeconomic scale. But the positions themselves are inimical to hiring people of color. Um, Mm -hmm. And until that changes, I don't think we should expect this little infographic to look a lot different. Rebecca, am I right about that? I mean, I don't know what to say. Yeah, I don't know how it could look a lot different. Um, uh, Erica Barmash, who has worked for multiple publishers, had a great thing on her Instagram uh, commenting on this as well, that she's been in the position to hire several times uh, during her career in publishing and that it is challenging not to find black candidates Mm -hmm. for these jobs, but to find particularly black candidates for these jobs that can afford to take the low pay that is available, especially in editorial Mm -hmm. positions and in entry level positions in publishing, because exactly as you were saying of how wealth is distributed and that they are not coming from in inherited wealth, generations of inherited wealth or parents who can pay for them to have an apartment so that they can work for a publisher for peanuts. Um, I think it's probably more accurate to say that it's the best way to get hired in publishing is to be a white person who has family money um, rather than just to be a white person, which definitely helps, but it's a Mm -hmm. white person with family money or with something in the bank or where you're willing to, where you're not only willing but able to do like multiple jobs in a kind of hustle that's i think very taxing on people's physical and mental health as well um it's impossible to imagine how that's going to shift meaningfully without the publishing industry shifting meaningfully by paying people more at that level i mean that would be the thing that and where's the money going to come from it's easy to spend other people's money, right? I mean, right. I don't know where the money is going to come from. Executives taking less money, charging more for... Uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not even here to say I know what the problem is but I, or what the solutions are, but I think that particular, so that particular problem is the bottleneck in publishing, especially. Now, I don't... Why in sales and literary agents? I think it's all part of the same thing. But editorial being 1%, and that's the... People that come up through editorial tend to have a lot of power. Later, they become publishers and CEOs. Um, they have the they have largely editorial wags the the dog for what mm-hmm. gets bought and sold and how marketing and publicity money is spent. So, in a lot of ways, it's the locus of power and the one that's most hostile to black people having access to it. Um, so, anyway, again, it's it's not my it's not my wagon to pull, but that's the wagon. 
that needs to be pulled um, if people really do care and in a way that causes difficulty in trying to figure out what's going to happen. You know, maybe some of these giant advances that never earn out and they know aren't ever going to out earn out mm-hmm. shouldn't happen. But then you're competing with other publishing houses like I wish I, you know, I wish it was easy that we could post on Instagram and say I stand with black people and then things go away like that's not how it works. It's never worked that way. And it's going to I mean, the, the work largely is. You know, as, as James Baldwin said, there's nothing wrong with black people that the end of white supremacy wouldn't fix. There's nothing wrong with how white people could do better that the end of white supremacy wouldn't fix. And it mm-hmm. comes from multiple vectors all along the watchtower and beyond. Um, and the scale of the problem is such that it can be really hard to say if we just did this thing. There's a lot of these right. things that none of them by themselves can do much, if anything, on their own. I mean, probably... There are things that could be more or less impactful, but there's no magic um, word here. There's no key. There's no action. There's no single law um, that can do this. Um, But to say that this is the problem and to keep shining a light on the problem and hope that at some point someone that sees the light and can turn on the light switch in the room um, will do something about it. Yeah. Anything else to say about that? I mean, there's a uh, lot more. Well, <laughs> to I guess say I'm just about talking about it. this this particular infographic. We we can we can talk some more. Um, yeah, no, I'm glad to I'm glad to see this come out now. Um, usually, yeah. we see these kinds of graphics, you know, at the end of the year or at, right at the beginning of the year, looking back on a previous year. And I'm glad and grateful that Lee mm-hmm. and Lode does the work that they do, but to have done it and be shining a light on it in this moment and forcing the publishing industry to have some kind of conversation that is yeah. long overdue. And and we often talk, um, we, well, we we frankly just did it right now, saying buy books from black bookstore owners, buy books by black people. This is one place of the world that sort of your activist capitalism can't really affect, right? Like, right. Uh, what could you do to inspire a big five publisher to hire more editorial people of color? I don't know. Email me, podcast a book, write them a letter. I mean, I mean do the things that you can do, I guess, but like, there is that there is you know one of the great critiques I've, that's happened I think I think especially since Trump and I don't know why well I have some theories but I don't want to speculate this critique of the um, doing good through spending more money through, at stores and on shoes and bags and different kinds of things that critique has been out there for a while but getting some traction especially like mm-hmm. there are limits to and and maybe in a way that the system is accounted for the limits to which sort of my ethical buying has an impact on anything that really matters. Um, I think about that a lot these days. Mm-hmm. It's like it's I, I, that I bought a couple of books from a black bookstore by black authors. I can't let I can't say that I did something. I mean, I guess it's better than not, but that's not the end. That's not the begin. That's not even the. That's not even the beginning of the beginning of how right. things have to change. Um, anyway, uh, what other stories do we have here coming up? Um, where do you want to go, Rebecca? Well, we have a couple links in the show notes yeah. um, for you all for that are reading lists. Um, one is a guest post that was written for us by Lawrence Ware, who's an assistant professor of philosophy at Oklahoma State and writes about um, five books about black movements and systemic racism in America. So if you're looking for another place to start, we'll have that um, really wonderful guest post for you in the show notes talking about publishing, beginning to have a conversation that's long overdue. There was a story just out earlier today, or I guess an announcement um, 
an op-ed. I'm not quite sure what this mm. is. There's a piece in Publishers Weekly uh, by Jim Milliat called It's Time for the Book Business to Change that is acknowledging and addressing uh, this current moment, um, the killing of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter movement in general, um, and the lack of diversity in publishing and notes that uh, for PW's part, quote, we are committed to increasing our efforts to promote diversity. And as a first step, we will hire a black writer to write a regular column and do reporting on diversity and social justice issues. Mm. Um, there was, you know, it's been out for a few hours already. We've been talking about it on the um, on the Book Riot contributor Slack. And like, this is a column that needs to exist. This is coverage and discussion that needs to exist in publishing. It also has needed to exist for a very long time. Um, and I'm having a hard time, like personally, and I've been talking with friends about it who are experiencing the same things, being glad to see some of the work that's being done now, but also feeling like, man, you should have done that a long time ago, and it could have made a difference. Um, so I guess we'll look out for what this looks like in the future. Um, from Publishers Weekly, I hope they will hire more than one black person. Mm. Um but seeing that from Publishers Weekly, not really much, you know, book, straight book news mm. this week. Um, but in the land of adaptation nation, um, I saw that Snoop Dogg is producing yes. the, t- the TV adaptation of Joe Ide's IQ detective series. And I could not be more interested. <laughs> well, I, I'm... I'm- Again, it's been a while since I cared too much about Snoop Dogg. I think to 94 was the last time I maybe like that oh, was Jeff. a part of my life. But I will I'm glad that this series is getting some money because it is a yeah. story about black people centering black characters. Um and it's just a lot of fun as a book, frankly. It's mm-hmm. basically a modern the main character is a modern version of a Sherlock Holmes type character, but who lives in black neighborhoods in Los Angeles um, and deals with the kinds of crimes um, and characters and situations that come up in those. And I've read every book in the series. I look forward to every single one. I don't know if Snoop Dogg is a good producer. I think what he, the the thing that's encouraging to me is like, he's not going to be able to, he, he wouldn't be afraid to make it, um, as realistic as as the books themselves are, or mm-hmm. as grounded, or as you know, not as interested in like making white people feel comfortable about right. what, what they're watching, as right. if it got picked up by you know Scott Rudin or someone else who's a competent and good producer, but doesn't have the same kind of care necessarily. I feel like Snoop Dogg is going to have to make this thing feel legit in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I agree, and I'm happy to see that this was the result of a seven-way bidding war. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's like, get paid, Joey uh-huh. Day. Right. It's yeah. gonna, I think that's going to be really interesting, and it does have the potential, you're saying, to be re- really true to the books and to the world mm-hmm. of the books and the characters and to, I think, do them right in a way that's not catering to... Like, these books aren't written for white people, um, and I think we can count on Snoop Dogg to make a TV show that's not um, trying to appeal to the white gaze. Mm-hmm. The Wire meets Sherlock Holmes is what the 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 just, the blurb here, which is I'm all you could the way do in. worse. You could do worse than that. I think <laughs> that isn't captured either. But if you haven't read them, that's as good as you're going to get. For it's a compelling pitch. If you it is, read it really yeah. is. Um, we've got a we've got a listener email that we're going to spend a few minutes on because it's it's uh, interesting. But let's do a, a sponsor first. Kenneth wrote into us uh, a couple weeks ago um, with a question that I felt bore a few minutes of talking about 
I'm not sure if now is as good or bad time to do it, but we're doing it now. Um, and I sent it to Rebecca to do some forethinking thinking about, which is also a little unusual <laughs> for me to give her heads up about feedback. Um, so some indication of the seriousness with which I, I, I want yeah. to take this particular question. Yeah, yesterday when you were like, I'm going to forward you a listener email, my heart kind of jumped into my throat of yeah. like, oh no, Jeff oh, no. never tells me what's going to happen on the show. What's happening? Um, do you want to... Read the email, or how should we sure. do this? I didn't yeah. drop it in the agenda, but um, I'll read it. That's yeah, yeah. just it's fine. Um, hi, my name is Kenneth. I'm 18, and I'm realizing as I write this that I first listened to the show four to six years ago. Kenneth, you are remarkable. Uh, as I will be attending college as a freshman in the fall, probably through online classes, I'm wondering about what I should pursue with my life. I'm almost certain that I want books to be part of my career in some capacity. I wanted to be a librarian for a few years, and recently I've entertained the idea of being an English teacher or even a bookseller of some kind. My question for both of you and anyone else who cares to answer is, has your love of books been diminished or otherwise affected by a career relating to books? I realize that professional critics of any medium probably find it difficult to enjoy that medium like a regular person might. I'm wondering if you struggle or if previously struggled with something similar to that. I'm also curious about any other ways your career has affected your reading life and your ability to enjoy literature. Thank you. Kenneth. That's a lovely email. And I'm having my mind is kind of blown by the idea of a 12 or 14 year old listening to our podcast. I'm so sorry, Kenneth. <laughs> um, there's I think there's there's a there's the overt question here. And there's an there's an implicit and explicit mm-hmm. question. The explicit question is, does it change your love of reading? Um, the answer to that is yes. Yeah. Does it diminish it is a different question. Um, I don't think so. I, mm-hmm. I think probably like a lot of you who grew up reading books in a place that wasn't New York or people or around writers or authors or agents, the publishing industry, you didn't even understand it that there's an industry. Books happened. People right. wrote them and they appeared at <laughs> Barnes & Noble or your bookstore or whatever else they were. And it seemed like magic. They they came from a different strata of human existence. And as we said in the previous segment, they sort of do, but they also don't. They're made by real people with real flaws who are not magic, who are not meaningfully smarter than the smart kids at your high school, wherever you grew up. Um, the people there make mistakes and have flaws and humor and graciousness and anger, just like everybody else. If you want books to feel like they descended from heaven, prepackaged, um, manufactured for use by art elves somewhere, <laughs> that will change. You see, I'm getting, you know what I'm getting at, though. Yeah, That's going to change. The, That's going to change. Know, when you know how the sausage is made, your relationship to the sausage changes. Yes. You can't unknow it. You can't unknow it. On the other hand, knowing how the sausage gets made will give you the impression that the sausage gets made at all. That how many people have to, how many, not even bad, how many forgotten books that people really sweated tears over and time and effort and publishing dollars and cover design and copyright and publicity tours that now no one breathes a second word about. For I don't know how many of those you have to do, how many of those have to happen for there to be a Gilead, for there to Mm -hmm. be a Nickel Boys, for there to be... Um, a, such a fun age. You know, the books you've heard us talk about that we like, there's a lot that just don't make it, man. Um, and 
that's that's the piece that I think I've gotten that I would never have had respect for because I was reading lists of prize winners and mm. paperback favorites and yep. I was so the survivorship bias that's randomness that's structural racism that's structural sexism that's you know eurocentrism that's american uh, exceptionalism all built all those things built it but add on to that other layer that there's just so many books even without those things that they all can't remember they all can't get their time in the sun that to me the, the artist who writes the writer who writes knowing hoping but knowing that their third midlist novel is not going to pole vault them into the ranks of history or consciousness and does it anyway that's 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 the thing that maybe is more beautiful to me yeah. now than I could ever could have known yeah i think you know when you have a couple friends who are novelists and you get to see it up close mm-hmm. of like what that life is really like for most people who are writing books and selling books these days is that you know writing is not their full-time job very few authors make enough money like very very few make enough money from their book contracts and sales alone for that to be their full-time job and so to see people up close like getting up at you know 4 a.m to write before their kids are up and before they go teach full-time and then come home and grade essays and deal with whatever else normal people have to deal with in our households it it does make the existence of most books seem uh, I have a, a much greater sense of wonder yeah. <laughs> about that um, than I had previously because that's a part of the sausage making that like it defies logic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's um, Well, for fiction, especially most people write for years with no promise yeah. of payment. Right. And right. they have to, they have, to have a full manuscript to get an agent. Right. Or right. Of ever right of ever selling a mm-hmm. book like, you know, most most people who write a book will never get an agent and very many people who get agents will never have a book published. And very few people who have books published will gain recognition of any kind. And that the art is that important to people knowing who know those odds. And, and I think um, the publishing industry does not do a good job, but we're doing a better job, but people inside the industry doesn't don't do a good job of um, generally putting that out there yeah. that this is this is what you're up against if you're trying to become a writer. So I I do have a lot of and it's vocational awe that has a lot of downsides as well. Um but I do have a lot of respect for how those books get made, where the creativity comes from. Um yeah. and the drive to do it despite all of the inherent unlikelihood of success mm-hmm. and and the challenges and the downsides. Um I will say it hasn't I agree with you. It doesn't diminish my love of reading. Um, I feel like it expanded it in some ways that before I worked in books, I knew that books opened my eyes and changed my world. And some of this is largely impacted by the fact that my career in books has been entirely on the internet mm-hmm. um, and that the internet even exists <laughs> to be a thing. But um, seeing how books can change the world and seeing how recommending books to people changes their individual perspectives and they go out into their groups of friends and their book clubs and their communities and then they share those books and that creates a ripple effect or it has the power to create a ripple effect. Um, Really, I sit with that a lot. That really has come home to me being online for as long as I have now and working in books, but the experience of sitting down and reading a good book is still, you know, as magical as it ever was. Um, 
maybe that would be different if we were like critics who got paid to unpack line by line a book and review it and issue a judgment on whether people should read that book or not and whether it was a good book or not. I certainly do read differently when I'm when I have to give a critical opinion about a book. Most of my reading life, like thankfully now, um, with Book Riot is in a place where I'm reading just what I'm interested in and what yeah. I like or what's been recommended to me by people that I trust. And so I don't have to put those critical glasses on. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, I think the other, the the more implicit question, there's sort of multiple levels of implicitness is, is this a good idea to do mm-hmm. as a career to work in books? Um, is it, you know, the, the, the nervousness I'm sensing in this question is, will I be disappointed, mm. right, about this career choice? And that's a much more difficult question. Um, I think... Here's what I know about books is a lot of people who don't work in books at all get as much pleasure out of books as I get out of books and they don't have to Absolutely. they don't have to swim around in it all day. So I don't know that working in books will add it may not diminish your pleasure and reverence and you know sort of wonder and, 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 and fealty to the idea of reading as a central part of your identity and existence. It may not take away from it, but I'm not sure it's going to add much, though. I mean, maybe is that the more cynical mm, point? Yeah, but I feel that to be true as well. I well, I detected the same question in yeah. this in this email about like, sh- it, do I really want a career in books? Um, and I think the question I would ask back is, what is it that you're hoping to achieve yeah, by right. working in books? You know, like. I'm, you know, making some assumptions from the fact that you've considered being a librarian. Or from you've listened teacher. to this damn show for four yeah, years, yeah, <laughs> right. That, like, you know, you've probably had a librarian and an English teacher in your yeah. life that have impacted you meaningfully. I know it's true for both of us. Um, and if you're thinking about having that kind of impact on a young person's life and putting books into readers' hands or or being a bookseller. Um, that's certainly you know a very direct and personal way to achieve yep. that. Um, when we talk about like working in books as a broader thing, like working for a publisher, even working for Book Riot, like you know, I think maybe five percent of my day is actual thinking about books, and the other ninety-five percent mm-hmm. of it is like administrative and personnel and looking at spreadsheets. Yeah, <laughs> and right. that may also be tied to the fact that my relationship to reading hasn't changed very much doing this job because it's actually not that bookie. Um, and and mm. like being a bookseller is about putting books in people's hands all days, but, it, but it's not about sitting around reading um, all day. And there's a lot of work that goes into that that is also not directly bookish if you were to own a bookstore. It's, yep. That's also a lot of math and a lot of business planning and a lot of challenges as well to figure things out. So I think well, it's something that I wish somebody had told me when I was 18 and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life was like, talk to people who who do those jobs, like probably yeah. a bookseller in your town would be willing to talk to you about what their life is like. Um, and, and probably an English teacher or a librarian would talk to you about how they came to doing that kind of work. Um, but I would say... Also, like these are those are difficult jobs. Being an mm-hmm. English teacher, being a librarian, working with kids or the general public, working as a bookseller, um, you're almost guaranteed to be underpaid <laughs> in yep. all three yep. of those possibilities. And there are many, many ways to enjoy books in your life and have them be a central part of who you are as a person and of what you bring to your communities without them being your vocation. Um, mm-hmm. 
you should also read So Good They Can't Ignore You by Cal Newport. Yep, you should. Um, and I guess, again, I've, I've been around the idea of reading all my life, as I can remember, and it's been a central part of my professional identity um, and my academic one since I was, you know, 17, 16, 17, late high school. And one thing I've learned, because I've had a bunch of different experiences and a bunch of different situations, is that a bad situation in a field you like is not as good as a good situation in a field you know nothing about. Mm. You'll probably be happier with a good job as a cheesemonger, even if you care nothing about cheese, than a bad job in books, even if you like books. Um, it's not enough. It's not enough to rescue a toxic situation, unhappy situation. It's not enough to fix your life to be working in something that you say you like because it's not about that. That's not what working in the world generally is about. Now, having a purpose in your job, I think helps a lot of people. Having some sense of impact, autonomy, creativity, um, but that can happen in a lot of different situations. So if it's a way of hoping that the world of work will be rescued for you by being Mm. tangentially related to books, I would not put too many eggs in that particular basket yeah, on myself. I completely agree. The, and I, I guess I should hang a lantern on the reason that I was recommending So Good They Can't Ignore yeah. You is Cal Newport really explodes the concept to find what your passion in life is and then figure out a way to work in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are, I think that's terrible advice to young people. Um, and my career has been far from linear. Um, it would have been... I think a little easier to navigate if I had not thought that I needed to figure out like, what is the thing I'm passionate about in the world? And also how can I make a living Mm -hmm. doing it? And I guess to connect also to what we were talking about in the top of the show is one of the ways that publishing remains a broken system is selling people, especially young people on the idea that you should be willing to be grossly underpaid because you get to work in books Mm -hmm. because books are magic in some way. Um, And there's, I think, power to the idea of considering refusing to be part of that system. Yeah. And it's 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 a two way street, too, because people want to work as a bookseller and a lot of people want to do that. So basic supply and demand seems that the pay will go down because they don't have to pay as much to get people to do it. Right. It's not again, maybe I sound like big capital, like the guy on the Monopoly board with the top hat or whatever. But (laughs) there is a part in which a two way street of like the refusal to do it is part of it. Um, because people think they either they actually do or think they do get something out of it that's more than that they would get if they were collecting uh, recycling bins off the street or something like that, right? So they say, well, I get some, and and that's that might be okay. I'm just saying that I'm not sure it's enough to make up for if if a bad job as a bookseller is still a bad job. Um, A bad job as a book editor is still a bad job. I guess as you're you're going into college, so you're not coming out of college is a different situation. Right. You know, one thing I wish I had known at 18 is that there's a lot of ways to be around ideas and stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could use this time to explore, I, you know, a diverse amount of experience within whatever educational situation. Work for the newspaper. Go check out the newspaper. Take an economics class. Books yeah, is a business. Get a part-time job at a bookstore. Yeah, or any business. <laughs> any All businesses don't sort of de- work the same, frankly. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't declare your major in the first semester. Yeah, don't declare your take major. A, take a bunch of different mm-hmm. things, but take a business class. Take a macroeconomics class. Take a microeconomics class. Educate yourself about the, the language of business that most of us are going to find ourselves either working with, for, um, or around most of our lives 
And that will open up opportunities all along what you might be able to do. Write for your literary journal, that's fine. Mm -hmm. But also, how is the world that can connect to um, other interests available to you? Um, I wish I had taken more business classes, or even a macro, any kind of, I wish I'd worked for the paper, um, you know, where it give you a chance to do some writing that other people are going to look at that's not a five-paragraph essay um, about Faulkner, because that's great. No one likes that more than I do, except for probably Faulkner mm-hmm. scholars. But there are the ways of communicating around language and ideas that's going to be useful to you in 99% of your situations aren't going to happen in English class. They're going to happen in journalism classes. They're going to happen in business writing classes. Um, if you can be a good writer, if you can care, you can care about language and writing um, and not have to work in quote-unquote publishing and still have fun. And still, mm-hmm. you know, writing can be fun in any situation. Um, I have a weird penchant to be able to write difficult emails for whatever reason. <laughs> it's so true. And I find it to be an interesting writing and intellectual challenge to yeah, do that. So yeah. what is it you like about, I mean, that's maybe that's the question. What is it mm-hmm. you like about quote unquote books? Because we're probably talking about one of many different kinds of things. Do you like the history? Do you like the story? Do you like the symbology? Do you, do you like English class? Do you like your high school English classes? Maybe you want, because your high school English classes are going to be different than your college classes, different than your graduate school class, and sure as hell different than working as an editorial assistant at HMH, right? Those are mm-hmm. not all the same things, even though they're nominally all around books. So, what part of it do you like and which part about books have you not had any experience with and where can you figure that out? Um, boy, I, I had a lot more to say about it. It's close to, <laughs> I guess it's close to yeah, my heart, right? I mean, this is, is a thing yeah. I care about. So Yeah, it is. Know. And, you know, I was thinking also while you were talking, like there are literacy nonprofits yes. that, you know, need grant writers. Mm-hmm. So what, like, I don't know anybody in any nonprofit who is not perpetually looking for qualified grant writers. And like, that's a real invaluable skill. Um, it could put you in touch with, you know, with literacy nonprofits. You might decide that you want to be a development executive right. for a literacy nonprofit and spend your time fundraising and getting money to put books into kids hands or you know using books as a tool of activism there are so so many ways that books can be part of your professional life and even if they aren't part of your professional life I think that's absolutely fine yes um you know, most of the book lovers I know are not people who work in publishing. <laughs> Can't be. The numbers don't add up. That'd be the biggest pyramid right. scheme of all time. <laughs> right, right. Um, oh. I think you can rest easy that if you do decide to work in books, you won't love books less. No. You will experience books differently, and some of those ways will be deeper and more meaningful, and some of them might make you more cynical or give you a different perspective, but you will not love them less um that i feel like we can agree on (laughs) yeah and i think that something that's so different i mean you and i've experienced this to some degree rebecca over the years but so different than when i my worldview when i was 18 going into college in you know the fall of 1996 Mm -hmm. um is that you can have a you can have a life around books that's not dependent upon your classes like we both wrote on the internet and kind of made our jobs out of that mm-hmm. um, that wasn't dependent on getting a GPA or having a transcript or a letter of recommendation. And we let our work speak for ourselves and we connect to other people. And, you know, you can do that. Put yourself in a position where if someone's interested in hiring you, you can point them to your website and you have a bunch of interesting stuff there, you know, that shows a mind at work and skills um, that you've honed and worked on over time. And that's kind of universally applicable, you know, like the, the people that... Mm-hmm. To get an A minus in a bunch of classes is fine. To get A's in a bunch of classes is fine. But to get a three six, but also have really interesting side projects that you've worked on over time and you're dedicated to, shows a kinds of self drivenness 
that is universally, in my experience of hiring, universally mm-hmm. interesting for people yeah. to see, whatever work you tend to go into. So I think have a have a project, have creative time. And I don't mean you're writing short stories or poems, though it could be that. But what can you show people that shows a dedication, that shows an interest, that shows skills that's not going to show up and here's my mm-hmm. here's my letter of interest in this job as a entry level copy editor at the New Yorker which would be a cool job and I'm not saying you shouldn't get that but like do you have a what else can you show people cuz you have we have no excuses anymore to have a, a a portfolio because no one has to read it to have a portfolio in the old days you had to get published now you can publish right. yourself <laughs> Yeah, that's true. And, you know, you might, as you're going through your college experience, look for internships that could expose you to different ways of working Mm -hmm. in and around or adjacent to books and test out those things as well. I'm thinking about like, you could end up working at Goodreads, you know, you could end up working for some app that doesn't exist yet. You could work for Kobo Mm -hmm. or Libby or Audible, you know, or Libro FM. Um, And those are probably jobs that are mostly like our jobs that are based in, you know, technology and business and having knowledge of books is a requirement, but is like, it's necessary, but not sufficient um, for, for the work. Um, so I think I would I would start there with what is it? I'll just go back to the I guess my original answer is like what is it about books that you want make that makes you want to work in books and what are you hoping to achieve um, by working with books? And that's a that's an enormous question for an eighteen year old. Um, I'm twice your age and it's an enormous question for me. So it's yeah. also okay if you don't have a full answer. But I think no. that's a good starting point. I'm going to do my generic freshman advice that I used to give for freshmen. You ready? I've got uh-huh. several several points. I may have done this on the show before. Yeah, yeah, you have, but I think it's always it's, it's always good. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Go to office hours to all your teachers every semester. You don't have to go every t- every week, but go to office hours even if you don't have a problem or a question. Um, talk of, to your professors, your teachers, your instructors, your TAs. Um, there's a couple of reasons to do this. One. I think you'll find it interesting. Two, if you need a letter of recommendation, that's good for that. Three, if you need a break, if something happens, if, like, this is a completely hypothetical example, you got the day of your Shakespeare final wrong, and you (laughs) tore into your Shakespeare final an hour late, completely soaking wet, wearing only sweatpants and a sweatshirt, (laughs) and with a pen and no blue book, that your teachers know you've tried and that you weren't just... um, slagging off and they gave you an extra hour after the exam was over to finish your exam that may be a real story that someone yeah. i know named jeff um experienced <laughs> also they could probably tell you what it's like for them to work in books that's right yeah um go to office hours also if you can it, take multiple classes with the same professor over multiple years yes. so that when it comes to write a grad school letter or something else to be nominated for an award or a fellowship or something else they can speak to your development over time Ask your friends, uh, friends, colleagues, flatmates, whatever it is, what the best class they had last semester was, uh, what the best professor they had was, and take that class. doesn't matter if you're interested or not. A good professor makes for a great class. doesn't matter this, the, the topic. Mm-hmm. A bad professor and something you thought you'd be fascinated by will be a slog no matter how fascinated you are by the topic. Also a good way to go outside your comfort zone, especially if you're going into a liberal arts sort of curriculum. Try to study two hours a day whether or not you have something due the next day. Redo your reading. Go over your notes. Make it a habit to block off time on Tuesdays. Every day, there's some study time in. 
Um, that's good discipline over time. You'll not fall behind. You'll have better work-life balance. Try to only go out Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights. Just try. Also, freshman year, first semester is about not flunking out. Grades are great. Yeah. Get as many A's as you can. But don't worry about a B. Don't worry about a C. Get through it. It's such an adjustment that getting through the first semester is fine. And no one cares all that much later about your first semester. Your first semester GPA is not nearly as important as your eighth semester GPA. Um, so d get through it. Don't panic. Don't drop out um, unless it's just a horrible fit. Don't be afraid of transferring either. That's something that I and a lot of kids of my generation, I don't know if we're Midwesterners or what, just didn't think about transferring. It wasn't the right fit for me, but I know a lot of people mm -hmm. that I think would have been a lot happier if they found a different fit earlier. Um, so that's th those are my pieces of advice. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to piggyback on those a little bit. I think don't take a class just because you hear that it's easy to do yeah, well right. in, which for someone like me who's a an overachiever translates to take some classes that you think you might not be able to get A's in and take them anyway. Um, let it be challenging. When you find those professors who make your brain tingle, um, often that's because they, like, they think in a way that you haven't thought before. Um, and they're opening something up and that can be challenging and scary and exciting. Like Take as many classes with those people as you can. And I think do try to take if you can swing it with your course load, like a class every semester or a class every year that you don't think you'll be interested mm -hmm. in at all. Um, and I like, I think you could marry this, especially with Jeff's recommendation of just taking a class that a friend said was the best thing that they took or the best professor that they had. It um, opens your eyes to learning experiences of different kinds. And it's just good to learn about a variety of things. And I think to find that you can be curious if you are curious if you bring curiosity and interest almost anything can be interesting yeah that's um, right i am now like 15 years later 20 years later lord it's been 20 years since i went to college mm. um <laughs> since i was a freshman i am still quoting things i learned in a plants and civilization biology class that i only took because i heard the professor was weird and cool and he was weird and cool i didn't know anything about plants or botany or whatever hmm. um it introduced me to some new ideas it's def it's like not the place where my love of the natural world was born or anything it wasn't that kind of magical experience but i'm like still quoting useful things that I learned in that class. And I would never have taken it if you just asked me what I was interested in. Yeah. Well, Kenneth, you got more than you bargained for there. <laughs> Thank you most so much for writing. Um, Good luck. Best, and we're sorry. <laughs> best of luck. Uh, you know, uh, this is something that's developed, I think, you know, in our lifetimes for sure, maybe even before, but um, to think of your twenties, again, this is um, not true for everyone, but can be true. That the tw your twenties, you know, after college, those years after college, are is a can be a question. Think of it as a question mark decade. You don't have to decide anything mm -hmm. forever now. Um, you can try something and switch courses. Most people switch around a lot. Lord knows, my journey has been different than I thought when I was eighteen as a pre med mm -hmm. student. Um, so yeah, and it I, can go. I guess it can we'll, go. It can go. We can. We have so many people who work in books in so many ways listening to this show, and Kenneth did welcome yes. outside perspective. So, listeners, if you have advice and perspective for Kenneth about your life working in books, how it's affected or changed your relationship to books, any of the above, if you want to disagree with us, whatever. Yes, countermand um, whatever nonsense yes. I have said. <laughs> Podcast at bookriot.com. Just put Kenneth in the subject line. Kenneth. <laughs> Happy graduation, Kenneth. Yeah, best of luck.